you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. We've been speaking weekly with Dr. Peter Chin Hong of UC San Francisco Medical Center. He's professor of medicine and infectious disease specialist. Dr. Chin Hong, a very good Monday morning to you. Great to have you with us. So great to be on, Larry. Happy Monday. Happy Monday to you. Uh, So let's start, first of all, where we stand on the Omicron variant. It appears cases continue to decline. What do you see as the off-ramp period here? Well, I think uh, right now, as you pointed out, cases are declining very rapidly. Uh, Hospitalizations have also been coming down, uh, not all uniformly, but in general. And deaths are still... uh, lagging and and going up a little bit. Uh, So, you know, I think the crux of the matter is we still have about about 2,600 deaths a day in the United States. And to put that in perspective, if you average out our flu deaths per day uh, in a typical flu season before the pandemic, it was only about 100 a day. So there's still some room to go in terms of before we think of this as being part of our regular fabric of life. You look at the different models for the future of of Omicron. All of this, of course, can be turned on its head by uh, the introduction of a new, better competing variant. But based on what you're seeing in the performance of Omicron, how many weeks do you think it'll be before we get down to that more typical flu season rate? Well, I think that... um we'll probably have a break in the United States. Uh, and again, Omicron has been re- very remarkable because it's uh, infected so many people around the world simultaneously, as much as you know, 20% right now in the US uh, and slated to be about 40% of the population by the time it's gone. And what that means is that a lot of people will simultaneously have immunity, either from vaccine, hybrid immunity, or natural infection, that will take us probably for a hiatus of a three, def- probably six months till the fall. And then we'll maybe think of it uh, being like influenza. Uh, it depends. And again, like you pointed out, if there's a new variant, but nevertheless, even if there's a pi or rho or a sigma, we're still going to be protecting the hospitals if people are generally boosted. So there's still time for that to occur. I I don't know if you saw that study. I think it was last week out of Harvard indicating that the symptoms of Omicron might have been less severe than Delta, not because Omicron was inherently 
uh, causing uh, lesser symptoms, but because so many people had been exposed to Delta or previous variants of COVID and or vaccinated and boosted, that that was really the reason why symptoms were less severe. W- what do you think of that? I think there is a lot of credence to that a hypothesis. Um, you know, if you look at the first place where uh, Omicron read its head, it was in South Africa, where at some estimates are anywhere from six, 50 to 60 percent of people had seen Delta in a recent surge. So even though they were reinfected, uh, they weren't going to the hospital in droves. And in fact, um, that is now thought to be the most likely reason why people have more uh, milder disease in general with Omicron. I welcome your questions for Dr. Peter Chin Hong of UCSF Medical Center. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Dr. Chin Hong, when we concluded last time, you, you mentioned we were talking about Football teams, uh, I think you said go orange or something. You a Bengals fan? <laughs> I am a Bengals fan, but um, you know I'm I'm you know I'm going to be rooting. Uh, you know, yeah, exactly. I'm 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 going to withhold my uh, my allegiance on air, given that That's fact right. that it's given me trouble before. No, no, no. We're we're all right. <laughs> so we would never hold your favorite team against you. So. Dr. Chin Ong with us on AirTalk, 866-893-KPECC. Catherine in West L.A. asks, if you've had a recent Omicron infection, does that offer some degree of protection against what's been dubbed the stealth subvariant of Omicron? Yes, we believe so that BA2, which is a subvariant of Omicron, um, is likely not going to affect people who have received or been infected with Omicron previously, even though there are reports of reinfections around the world. But so far, it seems to be the exception rather than the rule. Although we focus on the differences between BA2 and the original BA1, which is Omicron, there are more similarities and differences. So that's why we don't think that reinfection, so far anyway, is going to be a thing uh, with people. And certainly, again, if you think about the scariest outcome that you're trying to prevent, which is people going to the hospital getting sick, um, if you've gotten Omicron before, particularly if you've been vaccinated, you are unlikely to go to the hospital. On Friday, the CDC launched an online wastewater tool to help track new COVID infections. Uh, The tool pulls in data from the National Wastewater Surveillance System. And L.A. County, with with, uh, one of its sewer sheds, so to speak, is taking part in this. And this designed to give officials an early heads up about the spread of coronavirus or, or of a particular variant, even before we start seeing test results that would indicate that. Um, So if you were to see uh, an uptick in COVID-19 cases or the emergence of a particular variant based on that wastewater sample, what might hospitals do? I mean, are there ways that they could ramp up potentially and, and now with this kind of monitoring be in a better position than they would have been just responding to test results? Yes, I, I I do think that the National Wastewater Surveillance System, which is the name for this umbrella um, group of data collection, um, does will have benefit benefit to lots of systems 
in society, but it probably will, you know, take a while to trickle down to the hospitals in terms of its impact. The first impact, of course, is going to be in the community. I think in terms of hospitals, they can definitely react to that data by reorganizing systems and having, you know, people mobilize into specific, um, you know, disaster mode in, in case we need to go there. And we've learned so much during COVID that preparation is so important and not just reacting to something that's happening immediately in the community. Given the staffing shortages at hospitals, though, if, say, you got a week advanced warning that you had a new variant coming or cases are increasing and, you know, or, or I, you know, the observance of, of increased levels of COVID and wastewater indicated you were probably going to start seeing more people. Can hospitals gear up that that quickly without, you know, having staffing that they've had in the past few weeks? I think hospitals wouldn't necessarily be able to gear up as quickly in all areas, uh, specifically staffing, but they can still do a lot in terms of projecting uh, where operating room, um, you know, levels are, uh, thinking about surgeries. In fact, you know, during the pandemic, I think many hospital systems have devised tier systems similar to the California tiers, but very hospital based where when you reach this level, you implement this uh, reorganization of staff. So it's already there. Um, but again, you know, based on the wastewater epidemiology, um, uh, you know, it hopefully will not affect the hospitals as long as people remain with high levels of immunity, because even though it may not protect you against getting reinfected, we think that those memory T cells and B cells inside of you will kick out the enemy from your body and prevent you from going to the hospital. We're at 866-893-KPECC, or you can email your question for Dr. Peter Chin Hong of UCSF at, at uh, atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your location and your first name. Uh, we have a question from Sarah in Echo Park who emailed us, if one challenge to standard dosing with a nasal or mucosal vaccine is the someone could sneeze it out is an eye drop or a rectal suppository, a way to get standardized doses into the mucosal linings. I think Sarah's uh, points are really well made. Um, There are lots of other ways to deliver a mucosal vaccine. And for everyone in the audience, a mucosal vaccine is just a way to stimulate the immune system. That's the front of the front defenses. So amongst antibodies, the mucosal antibodies are the front line really of the protection. So if you can make those guards really robust, you can even prevent the enemy from causing a reinfection. So instead of reboosting everyone with a intramuscular inf- injection, you can just put something in the nose or in the mucosal area. So, I mean, I think a lot of people are looking at various ways of delivering that, but probably still the nose is the easiest way to do that. Um, you know, we use other ointments uh, like for staff and so on in the nose. So it would be a, a probably the easiest one to access. All right. We have Jimmy in Long Beach says he received his booster back in November and he wonders about the effectiveness of boosters. When did, when did they start to wane? Yeah, so based on some projections from Australia early on, it said that we lose half of our antibodies every 100 days or so. So that puts it around three months. So that's why people start uh, dipping at around six months, five to six months time with antibodies. Um, So that's kind of how, that's why my prediction is around the fall, 
most people's antibodies would have dipped low enough to prevent, uh, you know, to probably lead to possible reinfection. But our T cells and B cells inside of us stay robust the entire time. And that's the reason why we should get a booster because those T cells will remember for many years, we think if we look at the other vaccines, we hope uh, if you get that booster, despite the waning of the antibodies over time. And we hear about, of course, efforts to come up with an Omicron-specific vaccine. My understanding of mRNA vaccines was they were plug-and-play. So if you had a variant like Omicron that developed, you could rather easily and quickly substitute out to have it um, present for the Omicron spike protein. So why has that not happened fast? Um, it hasn't happened fast because then you need to, it takes about 100 days to make a new vaccine, uh, to design it. And then um, it takes, you know, addi- that additional time to sort of get it out uh, into, but you, you have to think of production and things like that. That's why people don't think uh, we will necessarily get to quote unquote true endemicity until we have two factors. The first is, of course, number of deaths that, that I've talked about. But the second is predictability. And the reason why predictability is important is because, say, we are going to have our, our uh, COVID surge again in the winter, next winter, and but somebody else is having winter before ours, so you can just go to those places, look at those variants, and then plug and play it, as you said. That will give enough time to put a booster in to prevent infection in our winter. But if things are happening asynchronously and all over the place, you don't really know what to bank on because it's unpredictable. I was looking at a Wall Street Journal piece, Dr. Chen Hong, which said over the past five or six weeks, uh, the Omicron variant has likely gotten more people sick than any similar period since the 1918-1919 flu pandemic. Um, that's extraordinary to think of because, of course, that flu was... Uh, you know, led to a tremendous number of deaths. Uh, your thoughts about Omicron being that big an impact, again, not comparing the lethality of it with with the 1918-19 uh, pandemic, but still remarkable, the number of cases. Yes. I mean, I think when you look at the numbers, it's really, really stark. If you think about how many people we think in the United States, for example, would have been infected by the time Omicron would have gone, it's 40 percent in eight weeks. If you look at influenza, only about 10% of the population gets infected within 16 weeks. So it's a new scale of infection. But like you pointed out, the for me, the in California, the, the tragedy of Omicron wasn't necessarily in overrunning hospitals, although we were very strained. It was more in so many people taken out of the workforce and the people who had to stay home to take care of their sick relatives. And that was really at a scale unimaginable because of isolation. You know, airlines, sporting games, uh, Broadway production shows, all of these were affected all of our ways of life. Do you see any way that we're going to go back to a shutdown of things? Um, my, My sense of public sentiment is that the public just isn't ready to do that. I mean, even if we have a new variant that comes through, are there circumstances that you can imagine we would go back and do that as we did early in the pandemic? I don't think for COVID we'll do that anymore because so many people have partial or better immunity. So we're not going to 
be afraid of it in the same way. We are going to respect it. Don't get me wrong. But we're not going to react to it as a society as we did ever in those early lockdown days. I think there will be lockdown for new kinds of infections, mm -hmm. uh, new pandemics like avian flu or something completely new where we don't have immunity. But now enough people have immunity where we can get away with some of these additional mitigation factors. I was looking at the story about uh, what's called broken heart syndrome. This is uh, heart problems that develop. It's particularly been noticeable during the pandemic with women. But there have been an increase in number of these cases where you haven't necessarily seen arteries clogged, but you have seen problems with heart function that's been attributed to stress uh, or to loss. Uh, Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Southern California, one of the places that's studying, studying so-called broken heart syndrome. Your thoughts about this, Dr. Chin Hong? Yes, there's definitely an increased recognition and uh, likely an increase in cases of broken heart, uh, of this broken heart syndrome mainly seen in women uh, uh, perimenopausal and older, um, where you have a sudden physical or emotional stress that leads to the weakening of the heart muscle. And because the heart doesn't pump that well, you can get dizzy, you can feel chest pain, you can have a headache, um, shortness of breath. Uh, and it's recognized when you go to the hospital thinking you have a heart attack, but then they look at the measures of, of a heart attack and you don't have it, EKG, et cetera. And it's due to this sort of like stunning of the heart muscle. An interesting factoid or trivia is that it's also called takosubo, um, heart dysfunction. And takosubo is the Japanese name given to an octopus trap where it's a narrow neck and a broad base. And that's how your heart looks when it's stunned. Wow, fascinating. A little bit of trivia about the name of it. Dr. Chin Hong, thanks very much. Uh, I wanted to ask you about New Jersey, where uh, the governor has uh, said the mask mandate is is ending for schools in New Jersey as they move to return to normalcy. Does that make sense to you that they would do that? And do you think we're very far from that happening here in California? Um, I was a little bit surprised with New Jersey because they have been so strict for much of the pandemic, you know, even from, you know, stemming from that tri, uh, you know, tri-state area of, of tremendous cases early on. Um, I think if it were to move and it was definitely moving in that direction in California as well. In fact, Burlingame uh, yesterday or over the weekend announced that, you know, a county uh, city close to me. Uh, that they're going to uh, drop the masking for students outdoors. So I think that sort of like baby step is probably uh, better than uh, just a wholesale dropping of masks. Of course, um, it's not that I'm thinking that it's not necessarily the right time, but it's probably better as a phased approach to keep students in the classrooms. I think that there will probably be cases and probably kids missing school. Uh, they won't probably get very ill. But that's what we're worried about when you suddenly drop the mask mandates in the schools, but not necessarily in the rest of the community. Does it make sense to you, though, that we're close to doing away with the mask mandate outdoors, at least? Oh, yeah, definitely. I never really thought about outdoors as being uh, very risky for COVID, even Omicron, just because uh, there isn't, you know, the, the the currents and the circulation just moves the virus so 
erratically that it really can't really settle in your nose and mouth that easily. Let's talk with Shannon in Chatsworth. Good to have you with us on Air Talk. Thank you. My son and daughter-in-law live in a household where the person tested positive for COVID about seven days ago. So they've been isolating together, kind of in their car, and have um, been intimate, you know, basically shared spit. Now my son has tested positive, but my daughter-in-law is still negative. Is it futile for them to isolate from each other? Or should she go ahead and stay away from my son and stay in a different room and use a different bathroom? I also have a second question, if possible. Okay, Dr. Chin Hong. That's a great uh, question, Shannon, and I hope your son is doing okay. Um, I think that I would be surprised if your daughter-in-law isn't truly positive, and that first, uh, if it was a rapid test, uh, might have been a false negative. So, um, you know, so that, but if it's a true negative, uh, I still, you know, if she's vaccinated and boosted, I'd probably feel more confident. Um, But if she's not vaccinated or hasn't gotten it yet, uh, I probably wouldn't want to get it, if at all, if you're sure she's negative, and would at least stay away for five days uh, while um, Shannon's son is, uh, is, is, is in full isolation. And then at day five, you can test. If negative, everyone's good to go. All right. Shannon, we're real tight on time. Real quickly, your second question, please. I got over COVID. I work in a high-traffic job, Hollywood Bowl, Reagan Library. What are the chances of me still being a carrier? I'm fully vaccinated and boosted. And how recently were you ill? Uh, January 10th to the 24th. Okay, thanks. Uh, I think it's pretty much a zero chance that you'll be, unless you are immune compromised, an individual is, you'll be close to zero of being a, uh, you know, having asymptomatic infection that's transmissible. All right. Thank you, Shannon. Appreciate it very much. Uh, Maria in Alhambra says, if the development of T-cells can protect you from infection, will a fourth dose for elderly people still be recommended in the coming months? Because they're coming up on several months since their booster shots. Yeah, that's a great question for Maria. So, again, as an infectious disease doctor, my goal is to keep people away from the hospital and keep them from getting really sick. Um, in the elderly folks, we know that, um, you know, the CDC re- re- released data showing that if you got boosted, uh, your your death rate drops 90 times more compared to if you're not, uh, if you're unvaccinated, for example, and much higher, even if you just got two vaccines. So to come back to the question, uh, for the elderly folks, first of all, make sure they got boosted because only about 30% of people uh, in the U.S., above 65 are boosted, and and it's really really important to do that. So fourth dose, so far, you know, is not as necessary. I think it's probably more important to get those folks boosted, and that's probably why we had such a a high hospitalization rate, really driven by uh, the older unboosted populations. Israel is doing this fourth dose, hadn't really shown to be much beneficial, much benefit in terms of preventing. Uh, infection with Omicron when you got a fourth dose. Uh, it may be a thing in the winter time. maybe if it becomes predictable and we can combine a COVID shot with a flu shot like Moderna and some others are piloting so people just get one shot. So a complicated moving landscape, but for right now, 
three is kind of where we sit with the older 65s in terms of an optimal recommendation. Now, you're in San Francisco, of course, Dr. Chen Hong, and here in L.A. County, we're seeing decrease in, in COVID-19 rates. Can hospitals in these areas with a decrease take on some of the patients from, say, the Central Valley, places with lower vaccination rates where they've had higher than typical hospitalization rates? That's a great question. So, you know, we've been celebrating the fact that California is turning the corner, but it's not necessarily so in the Central Valley. In fact, when you look at Fresno, Merced, some of these communities, they're coming down in cases, but their hospitalizations haven't yet come down, but they have been plateauing. So, I don't think so far that we run the risk of having spillover from the Central Valley. We were worried uh, early on. But as we reopen, I think one thing that we're always going to be worried about is influenza. It's said that, you know, I think a couple million Americans already had influenza. And as we move around more, influenza is runs as late as April uh, so that there's still room for that. But overall, I feel like we've passed that that dangerous period, and I think we're going to be okay, knock on wood. All right. Dr. Chen Hong, thank you so much for joining us again. I look forward to our conversations every week. I don't know what we're going to do. We're out of the pandemic. We'll we'll find another way to talk, but thank you so much. (laughs) We'll talk about football. Sounds good. Now, how did you become a Bengals fan? I I, I don't know. I like Tigers. (laughs) All right. Very good. Thank you so much, Dr. Peter Chinong, UC San Francisco Medical Center, where he's professor of medicine and infectious disease specialist. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at LAist.com, at kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.